Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, you're tuning into episode 44 of the Howie Games. Thanks for giving the show some of your valuable time. I'm not exactly sure what has happened, but since Christmas, the number of downloads the podcast has been getting has absolutely exploded. It's crazy how many people are now listening. So thanks to everyone out there who has helped spread the word. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. This week, the Howie Games features a truly remarkable person, Yelena Dokic. Yelena has recently released a book called Unbreakable, which details her tennis journey lived under the terrifying shadow of her abusive father, Demir. It's no exaggeration at all to say the book stunned and I guess horrified the world at times, especially for parents. It's a difficult book to read due to the subject matter. It left me shaking my head and at times close to tears, but it also left me filled with wonder and admiration for the strength that Helena possesses. I couldn't recommend the book Unbreakable more highly. It's a book everyone should read. This episode was recorded at Triple M in Melbourne a couple of months back, and to be frank, I guess I went into it with some real trepidation. I've never met Helena before, so had no idea how to broach the difficult subject of her father with her. Ask yourself, how do you ask someone you don't know such personal and what you would assume to be really painful questions? In the end, I need not have worried. Before I hit record, we had a brief chat where I explained to Yelena my feelings. This is where I first saw the inner strength and courage that this phenomenal woman possesses. Yelena was the one relaxing me, telling me to ask whatever I wanted, not to feel sorry for her. She always comes back to that, don't feel sorry for me. And she also explained her wish that the world knows her story, both on and off the court. At this point, I've got to say we're lucky that we have a lot of children who listen to the Howie Games. Now, it's not for me to judge whether they should be sheltered from some of the themes in this discussion or whether they should listen and learn. I'll leave that to you all out there. But be aware, there are parts of this episode which maybe you should listen to before your children do. As frequent listeners to the show know, the aim of this pod is to inspire and motivate. Inspiration, as I'm learning, comes in many forms and from places you'd least expect it. This is the story of a young girl, then a teenager then a young woman who suffered horrendous mental and physical abuse from a family member. The flip side to that is that this is a story of a person who has overcome time and time again to not only survive but to perform at the elite level. How? I truly have no idea. To Yelena Dokic, who has shown courage beyond belief to tell her story, you truly are unbreakable. Thanks for sharing your story. So when you search and then you find know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery what is to be revealed in king selassie i come on children try it with me we want to reach mount zion elena Welcome yes. to the Howie Games. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited about having you on. I've just read your book over the last five days, Unbreakable. Um, normally at this point I say it's an amazing book mm-hmm. and I love the book. This is the most courageous book I've ever read. Thank so you. congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, How's it been received? You've been promoting it for a while now and I'm sure people are coming up to you and approaching you. What are they saying? C- congratulations on putting this down because it's mm. it's called Unbreakable by Yelena Dokic and it's 
Yeah, it's a phenomenal mm. read. What are people saying to you? Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been out for three weeks actually, which is not such a long time, but mm. it feels a lot longer than that. But um, it's been amazing actually. I did not think it would get this much attention, to be honest. Um, and the, I mean, the support has been amazing. So from social media, but also people in person coming up to me. Obviously, a whole lot of women as well. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's been great because I actually say at the end of my book that if this helps one person it's mission accomplished but I think it's already done so much more than that and uh, it's actually really good because I see I can take it a lot further and certain you know goals that I have um, you know from charity to maybe my own foundation and so on so um, it's been great I'm still kind of um, you know it's all kind of still going on and the book promotion and and the book Mm -hmm. tour um, and it will go on for a few more months but um, yeah it's been great for a lot of reasons some some things have kind of been hard to be honest and, and, and a little bit um, have made me sad just um, how much probably people didn't know me and that's been the hard part um, so but then in a way it's good that I wrote the book so um, it's been it's been great and yeah I'm just looking forward to still the next few weeks and January as well which is big for me in general um, mm-hmm. with the tennis and, and next year as well I'm, I'm looking forward to everything yeah I read it over about five sittings and at some stages I was incredibly uplifted mm-hmm. and then at other stages, um, as a dad with young kids, to mm-hmm. be completely honest with you, I found it really, really difficult to read and and I was a bit unsure about mm-hmm. how to approach talking with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last paragraph in your book summarised the whole thing to me. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I'll yeah, read it back sure. to you. As you know, my story hasn't been a fairy tale, but I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I am luckier than most. Healthy, no longer a victim, I am a survivor and I will always find a way. Mm-hmm. Resilience is what mm. just springs out of the book. Yeah, I think that sums it up though. I think, um, look, for me, for a very long time, the life that I had was normal, you know, um, and people are shocked by me saying that, but it really was because it was my daily life. And from, you know, when I was six, it it started, which is very young. So the abuse started when I was very, very young. And I think it was normal for me. But deep down, I knew that it's not normal. I knew that I wanted a better life. I knew that I don't have to go through that and and that I'm better than that. And um, I fought for myself. You know, I went through a lot of difficult times even after I left home. But... I knew I wanted something better, you know, and um, I talk in the book about, you know, battling depression um, for a very long time and almost committing suicide. And um, look, it was it was hard for, for, for a long time. But I, in the end, you know, I I think I had this fight in me for, you know, for life because I love life and, and I wanted to fight for something better because I knew I could. And I think that's at the end, I think what it's about. And I think... The book, I think, can help a lot of people on so many levels, not just, you know, domestic violence victims and and kids and adults and women and and whatever, but also just to always, I think, fight for yourself, you know, because I was made to feel worthless by my father for a very long time, almost 30 years pretty much. So I thought, you know, I really thought that I wasn't worth anything and I had no confidence, no self-esteem. But, um, you know, I wanted to continue fighting because I knew I was better than that and and there was something better waiting for me. So, um, yeah, this, uh, yeah, look, um, the book, I think now that it's out, I've I've read it one last time before it went to print. Um, And I was happy with everything and, and I tried to put myself 
in someone else, else's shoes reading it. It was hard for me to read it myself because I went through this. I was not, you know, kind of, I think, a good, good candidate to in the end judge the book. Mm. Um, and I was thinking, you know, this is good. This is good because I'm so open and I'm so honest about everything, which um, it looks like no one's ever really done before, especially in sports. So um, that's what I wanted in the end. You know, for a lot of people, it's a hard read. It's brutal. But that's what happened and I think that's why it's important to get it out there as, as hard as it, as it is people are coming up to me saying you know we cried and we feel like we need therapy after this book but that's what it's about you know sometimes you have to face those hard facts because this is someone's life and whether we want to admit it or not it's still happening out there in, in you know um, sport in tennis and, and you know in society in general I just said to you as we sat down often with these episodes of the Howie Games, I've had the good fortune of working with the people or meeting with the people or dealing with the people. I've met you two and a half minutes ago. <laughs> um, so some questions. It's difficult to ask people very personal questions when you just meet them. You, you just mentioned you talked about thinking about committing suicide mm-hmm. and you talk in your book about uh, you're on your balcony in mm-hmm. Monaco mm-hmm. and thinking about, for want of a better term, throwing yourself off the balcony. Why didn't you do that? First of all, ask me whatever you want. I've said this to everybody. Really? People feel uncomfortable yeah, and I, I get that. I Even people coming up to me have a hard time looking me in the eye and I'm like, it's okay. You know, this is what's in there. I was, I knew what I was getting myself into and, and writing this was obviously, it was cathartic, but also very hard at, at you know, certain points. Um, so, you know, if I was ready to get this out there, I'm ready to talk about it. So I don't want people to at all feel uncomfortable. I understand that some people do and that's fine but I'm really okay talking about it all um as far as the the depression and suicide that's a big thing for me just as big as I think the abuse that I talk about in the book which is um for most of the book but um I I had no idea that I was dealing with depression you know you don't realize what you're going through for for a while and for me it was going on for almost 10 years um it was hard I you know I felt like for quite a lot of those 10 years that I had nothing to fight for and and I was constantly questioning my role in everything. I was made to feel very guilty by my father. And um, at times it was very hard to find those positive positive things and the light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I think in that moment, to be honest with you, could have gone either way. I've said that, you know, in the past few weeks in all my interviews as well. I was really close. It was literally a few centimetres this way or this way. Um, And... I was, I think in that moment, you know, lucky enough to be able to find that one or two good things that, you know, is worth staying for. What were those things? Um, For me, it was my partner, who I'm still with today, 15 years almost, and my brother. At the time, I wasn't talking to my brother because my father didn't allow that for almost um, six or seven years, and he is much younger than me, and um, I still wanted to be there for them, you know, that was what it was about, and I felt like... They need me and they want me here and they love me. And those were the two people I fought for, really. But um, I think my partner at the time, that was the main reason because he was with me and we were going through all this and um, he never complained once and he's the the kindest person ever. Um, And I think that's probably what kept me, you know, not to throw myself, literally. So let's go back to the start. You grew up in the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. Tell us about, as a young girl growing up and how you were introduced to tennis. Yeah, look, we we weren't rich or anything. We uh-huh. weren't well off, but um, it was a lot better than it, it is after, um, um, once the war starts. Um, we, 
I had a pretty good, I think, relationship with my parents. I don't remember, you know, um, any bad situations. Um, I know that my father did abuse my mother um, a little bit at the time, and I, I talk about some of those memories in the book. But for me, everything turned once I kind of turned six and I started playing tennis um, two months after my my sixth birthday. And um, How did you come to play tennis? My father got me started. He bought me a racket um, <laughs> after he watched Steffi Graf and Monica Sellers play the French Open. And um, that's how it started. But I actually loved it. I really did. It was, um, some people asked, oh, was it forced on you? Look, w- was the racket put in my hand? Absolutely. But I loved it from the you know first ball that I hit. So, What do you love about it? I love everything about the sport. I love just hitting the ball. I love the sound of it. I love, you know, how physical you, you get. I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm such a big competitor. So for me, it was perfect. It was, it was a very individual sport. But some of the sports you maybe you would play with the kids or at school were like too, like too much of a you know, team oriented. And I didn't like that. I wanted always <laughs> to control everything. So, yeah, I think tennis was perfect for me. But, um, yeah, it, it turned kind of bad very quickly and uh, he must my, my father started hitting me straight away when I started playing tennis and um, for us it, it, as a family got worse when I was eight it was 1991 and the war erupted and uh, we had to leave literally overnight we just took whatever clothes we were wearing my tennis rackets my three-month-old brother and we left we escaped um, so we went from Croatia to Serbia they all split split apart um, in the war and um in terrible conditions um so i describe about you know living in a rat infested ap- apartment where you know having water if we had water we were lucky and very often we had nothing to eat so very difficult conditions and i after a bit of time we settled in and then we had to move to australia three years later because um serbia was hit with restrictions travel restrictions um i got a great um management and, and sponsorship of, offer from germany from adidas and we couldn't go so um, my father was obviously very upset with that um, he had an auntie in sydney and six months later we we got our visas or we got refugee status and um, we moved to australia yeah so as a as a youngster, would it be prodigy is a strange word, but you were right from the start mm-hmm. a, a wonderful tennis player. So before you got to Australia at this point, you were head and shoulders above everyone you were competing against, Yelena? Yeah, pretty much. I was um, national champion over there in two or three age groups, just like I was in Australia within months that I arrived. So, yeah, I think, you know, I had quite a bit of talent and I worked hard, obviously, a lot of pressure from my father. But, um, yeah, I... I, I feel like even today that was my calling that was definitely what I you know should have been doing and and look even though I was four in the world I still feel like I didn't know fulfill my potential nowhere near to obviously what I what I could have and what I should have Um, but um, even with what I've done yeah it was definitely I think tennis was meant to be for me yeah you mentioned it started to get bad at the age of eight Mm -hmm. and I can only talk about this with you because you said to me yeah absolutely absolutely so 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 what's the reasoning and, and what do you think in your head as a an eight-year-old girl? And my daughter's turned eight today, mm-hmm. so. Um, oh, no, what, don't, don't. It's all good. What happens yeah. when your father hits you at, mm. at age eight? 
Look, I think um, for me, I describe him as getting worse as the years go by. Um, for me, it really got back bad when we got to Australia, even though he was getting worse every year and, and he got bad once we had to escape our home first time. But for me, getting to Australia at, at 11, that was kind of where everything went really bad and he got um, really, really you know, abusive in every way. Um, so verbally, I was. People might not think that someone abusing you verbally is bad, but it's bad when you're 11 years old. And some of the things I obviously described in the book and the names that he was calling me. What it, was he saying to you? From you know calling me um, a whore and a cow and all these different names. Um, it was hard. It was so hurtful on the inside, actually, that at times I would prefer to be physically abused. I really did. It was so hurtful because um, no matter how much he thought maybe I wasn't doing well or didn't train well or maybe I didn't win some matches, which was um, still very rare, um, I really worked hard. Like, I worked my, my butt off. I really did. And um, that was hurtful, you know. Um, he continued that for years and years, but... Um, and then I got to a stage where I didn't know what to deal with. Like I was dealing with physical, you know, abuse, emotional, verbal. It was all, yeah, it was hard. Um, at times it was all three of those at the same time. I talk about all sorts of different punishments. Um, the belt, I talk about the belt that I dreaded. Um, Tell me about it. The belt was... Um, that was while I was, let's say, younger, um, the worst one. It was quite painful and... Um, uh, he would also make me take off if I had long pants or or, or a t-shirt. I would have to take that off and be in shorts and, and a sports bra, because it hurt a lot more if you know if he hits you with your with it directly on your skin. And to this day, even when I was writing the book with with Jess, um, I was talking about that. It was it, it was hard to talk about that because to this day I have those memories. I even have memories of what it hurts like and how it stings, you know. And I know sometimes I would go when I would be in the in the bathroom or having a shower. And, and have a look at my back and you know it, there was not you know a centimeter of skin that wasn't blue or purple or red you know so um i think those things will stay with me forever um and they're quite um like i said not just physical it wasn't just physical pain you know it's it's mental it's 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 a lot worse than that um it was hard and like I said he got worse obviously when I was about 16 17 um, he used he used to um, hit me a lot more and, and punch me at one stage and I talk about me um, at, at one stage in Canada in 2000 um, I fell unconscious so um, from him striking you yeah yeah so yeah it was hard it was um, it was hard I, I did snap at one point and I leave home obviously at 19 but he was coming for a long time. And I think all of those things ultimately are what led me um, to have that really bad depression. I think that was a accumulation of maybe 10, 15 years of things that were going on. Yeah. What was it like? Um, it's still deba debated heavily in Australia now, Yelena, about refugees and mm -hmm. accepting refugees and how many the country could accept. What was it like for a young girl who I presume didn't really speak mm -hmm. English um, but you're a clever cookie. You talk about the book that you picked it up pretty quickly. What's it like arriving in a completely foreign country where you know no one, you don't speak the language and, and you don't have a great deal of financial backing behind you? Yeah, well, look, um, I think obviously some people have different opinions about, I think, refugees. Um, uh, all I can say is um, that people that don't go through it have no idea what that looks like. Um, 
for us, like I said, we didn't have too much, but considering what went on later when we became refugees, I felt like we had a lot, you know, because you lose everything, you know. It's not just about, you know, financial stability, but from your family. My grandfather was killed in the war when I was eight years old, and I, to this day, it's, some, it's one of the hardest things ever. Um, and a lot of people lose a lot more than that. They, you know, they lose their parents or their kids. And, and it's funny, actually, that, that we, we're talking about this now um, because I was going to one of my Foxtel interviews in Sydney and um, I took an Uber and uh, it was late at night and, and I was talking to the driver. It was quite a drive. And um, we got to talking and he was a refugee from, from, um, from Syria. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to me how, you know, he was a dentist and had this great job and everything. He lost it overnight. And um, But he said to me, but that's uh, that's nothing because I lost my father and my daughter who was 17 years old. And, I mean, what do you say to a man like that, you know? It was so hard. And I know what war is about. And we escaped on time, but I still saw de- dead bodies. People that we knew, you know, we would find out a year or two later they, they were dead. So it's very hard. I think people have no idea what a war looks like unless you've experienced it and what it what it is like to be a refugee, you know? I've had to do, I had to do it obviously a couple of times mm-hmm. and it's difficult. I also faced um racism, um which I talk about in the book and uh it was hard, but I also say, you know, considering what we already went through, um it was actually not that bad because I've seen a lot worse, you know? So I grasped the concept of war and what life is really about very early on, you know? What is it like, though, when people, when you're an outsider and people are saying to you, go back where you came from, mm-hmm. which is, I would have thought, one of the most hurtful things you could ever hear? Mm-hmm. Uh, very difficult um, because it's hard to hear it from, I guess, kids that are only two or three years older than you. Mm. And I didn't understand it even even today. It's hard to understand, you know, where that comes from. Um, obviously, the parents, which again, I talk about that in the book, tried to get a whole lot of my scholarship and funding cut, um, even though I, like I said, I was number one in multiple age groups and, you know, was completely eligible for it. But Because you were from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So, and this was no secret, you know, other parents that, you, you know, were supportive, um, the few that there were. They heard it. They knew about it, and and um, yeah, it's hard. It was it was difficult. Years later, I talk about you know also hearing again that one of the coaches in Australia um, said that he wouldn't even allow me to be, to be back in this country, let alone play the Australian Open or maybe get a wild card or play on Rod Laver Arena. So it's hurtful. It's very hurtful. Um, I know some things around me and my story people didn't know and, and didn't understand and I think I was probably misunderstood for pretty much until this book came out. But at the same time, sometimes I was very surprised by the lack of maybe understanding and, and compassion and just giving someone a chance to, to tell you what they really think, you know? Yeah. More of Elena Dokic in a moment. Next week on the Howie Games, we're continuing the tennis theme with a true legend, true legend of Australian sport. Who wears thongs? 1987 Wimbledon champion, Pat Cash. The classic case was when I walked out after, after winning Wimbledon. I mean, I walked in, got out there, celebrated with my, 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 my family and in the box, as everybody, everybody knows, and walked into the locker room. And I think one of the very first things that came out of my mouth was, all right, let's go and win the US Open. You know, that was, you know, instead of going, 
jeez, we won Wimbledon. Hmm. I won Wimbledon. This is awesome. Let's have a party. Let's crack the champagne. Let's do that. It was like, yeah, Buck is great. I won Wimbledon. But let's, let's go and win the US Open now. Let's win the US Open. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Just chill out, will you? <laughs> Just chill out. That's Pat Cash, who has lived a life and a half. Keep an eye out for that episode. It's incredible. Next week on the Howie Games. A quick shout-out to our sponsors that have been involved recently with the show, our original sponsor, National Crime Check, and more recently, South Australian Tourism. As I mentioned at the start of the show, the download numbers have exploded recently. It's crazy how many people are listening. And if your business would like to be involved in the show, email thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. Now, I'm no salesman. That's not my job, but podcasts are a fantastic way to connect with your audience. So have a think about it. All righty, back to Yelena. Tell me about life as an elite tennis player, um, which you were. What is it like on the court Mm -hmm. when you are unbeatable, when you are playing in the zone, when all that training you've been doing since you were a six-year-old is coming, whether you're a 17-year-old dominating at Wimbledon or getting a run at this Mm -hmm. round? What's that like? Yeah, look, I for me... Like I said, I, I already loved tennis, even if I maybe wasn't as good. But um, it's an unbelievable feeling. Uh, the one that I thought once I retire would be very difficult, obviously, to replace with anything else. Um, tennis is such a brutal individual sport. Um, I think any professional sport, you train a lot. But tennis, we really, like, we travel 10 months of the year and we play a lot of tournaments where, you know, alone mo- most of the time, especially for women, I think we're very, you know, vulnerable mm. on the tour. I was on the tour when I was 14, so it's very, very young. Um, Gee. Yeah, but uh, it, it's tough, you know, because we, like I said, we go through so much um physical and mental almost pain through all this training that you know when you win it's such a great feeling because you feel so rewarded for all the work that you've done Um, you know for us seven eight hour days of of playing tennis or running or or gym are normal so you know it's a great feeling but for me like I said I love to win and compete Um, so it was just such a everything from from relief to happiness to a lot of feelings that are probably a bit hard to explain to people that that actually maybe you know don't experience that. Yeah. What's the most beautiful match of your career? Is there one match you look back on and for for whatever reason or a period of time? Probably 2009 Australian Open, um, that big run that I had, and probably the fourth round when I won after that. I think three and a half hour match, and probably the best crowd I've ever had in my career was that one. Yeah. I guess the backstory to that is you came here, you represented Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your father didn't want you to do that anymore. No. Um, yeah, I, looking back at it, um, I think he always had that in plan, um, that he that we were not going to stay here and that he wanted to go back. But um, uh, I don't think he understood that those were probably his feelings and his feelings alone. I, I know personally know that my mum my didn't feel that sa- the same way. But for me, it was hard because um, I was still 17. I was very young. I was very afraid of him. And those were not my decisions. And I actually, someone asked me, do you, do you hate him after everything that, ha- that that has happened? And I said, no, I don't hate him, but I certainly hate some of the things that he's done to me and that he's made me do, and this is one of them, not to play for Australia anymore. Um, it actually really hurt. I was really upset by that because I, even though I had problems um, early on in the tennis community, um, I, once I got kind of on the tour and, and publicly I was quite exposed, I felt like the Australian public absolutely loved me and they were behind me and I absolutely loved that. 
and I felt Australian and I was very grateful for what Australia and Tennis Australia gave me and, and, and funded my career and made me ultimately the player that I was. That never would have happened um, if I wasn't here. And he made this decision uh, overnight and just put me right in the middle of, you know, everything that followed, which was, you know, 24 hours later, I had to be on, you know, Rod Laver Arena first round and play under this new country. And obviously um, the reception that I received was was bad, but I still think it wasn't as bad as it probably could have been. You were being booed by the yeah, Australian fans. Yeah, yeah, and I, to this day, I said it's one of my worst moments in my in my career. And it was hard. It was hard because the whole time I knew this is not me. This is not how I feel. He made me do this. And uh, this was probably something that um, ultimately, a little over a year later, I left home. Um, this was the decision. This is why I did it, because he made me do this. I, I really hated it him at, at that time for making me do this because I did not feel that way at all. It was actually, in fact, completely the opposite. And I think the hard thing, and I've sat in so many press conferences and you have a view from the outside world, mm-hmm. and the view from the outside world, you're speaking the words. Your dad said to you, you need to go into a press conference mm-hmm. and say you no longer want to play for Australia. The words come out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. So we think that's what you're thinking. Absolutely, yeah. But it was your dad's words and mm. he would make you speak them in various circumstances, yeah. whether it was getting rid of a coach or mm-hmm. fronting a press conference or defending him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. that was hard to explain to people. You know, even later when I came back to Australia in 2005, I actually wanted to come back a year or two earlier, but I was afraid with the whole, you know, public's reaction. It's hard to explain that to people. And... Um, it's hard to tell them, look, I didn't feel this way. And for some reason, people just wouldn't believe you, you know. And it's even harder when you don't talk about it, which I didn't. Um, I didn't do pretty much an interview. or didn't want to talk about all of those things for 15 years, pretty much until the book came out. So uh, it was um, it was hard. That's why I say I think I was very misunderstood by pretty much 99% of people, you know. Did you um, ever want to walk into those press conferences, though, and... Was it fear that stopped you saying, I'm actually going to tell you what's happening here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I knew what was waiting for me when I got home. So it was Physical difficult. Punishment. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to do it, though, after I left home. Um, but I was dealing with so many, you know, with my father and off-court things um, that I didn't then at that time feel ready to do it. And a lot of people ask me, did this book just come about, this idea? No, it didn't. I thought about this and knew I was going to write a book for a while. It was just about being ready you know and i i had a bit of an idea that people didn't know me and didn't know the story and misunderstood me but i didn't know it was this much Mm. now with this book coming out people you know i really feel like they had no idea they're coming up to me directly and saying look i was one of those people that did judge you and i was one of those people that you know didn't know and and thought you know it was all you or that you were different to what you actually are but uh, now that we look at even some of the footage, some of the media has said, you know, you had this hard look on your face, but now we understand why and you actually look sad. So, you know, it's I'm just a little bit, um, I guess, kind of sad that I wasn't able to explain this earlier, you know, mm-hmm. even though I don't think it's ever too late. But I wish maybe I did it while I was still playing, you know. And my relationship with the media, I think, was probably ruined by my father, um, if we're being completely honest. But at the same time, at times, I didn't understand why they were writing about him so much in a way where he was a headline and a joke and he was funny. And I 
do not understand that till this day and a lot of the media has apologized and I really appreciate that. But I think there's something to be learned here because they all interviewed him. They all interacted with him. They saw him at Grand Slams and he was aggressive. He was drunk and he was quite scary. So I didn't understand why nobody thought for a second, well, hang on a minute, there's a 15-year-old girl, 16-year-old girl going home with this person and he's not all there. You can see it. Mm. So I didn't understand that for a long time. What do you reckon, Yelena, it was the root of his issue? I guess early doors, it's you're the person that can provide financial security mm-hmm. for the family and, you know, you talk about signing over houses, you talk about sending back $200,000 a month, you're signing everything away to the mm-hmm. point where you don't have a cent. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, the family's financially secure. So mm-hmm. what do you think was the root behind what your father was doing? I'm not sure because I always thought it was to give the family a better life, which yep. he constantly used to tell me. It was no secret from when I was very young. So, what would he say? Oh, that I was the only way out for the family. And if I didn't succeed, I would um, it would all be my fault and, and I would be letting everybody down. And this was like from when I was very, very young. Um, so I thought that was always the case. I thought that was it was all about money. Um, but... My results got constantly better. I earned all this money. I talk about signing of a millions to him. Um, but he got worse and he was never satisfied. So I didn't understand it because he was, he had all this money, but, you know, it really actually in the end didn't make a difference. So I don't know in the end actually what his problem was, what it was all about. And some of, some of the, you know, I haven't even gotten some of the answers after, you know, a lot of years and I still don't know some of the things that... Um, are probably in his head and why he did certain things. But um, I also think that it's just him as well. I think he's just an abusive person. And look, he abused my mother as well. Um, uh, before he started abusing me, Just it's just that you know he didn't abuse her nowhere near as much as he abused me. So there's obviously something there. There's a pattern there. I know he was abused by his own mother. Mm. So I don't know whether that's got something to do with it. Um, but I think there's a, I, I think it's a bigger problem than just money, you know, because he got it in the end and it didn't make a difference. So I think only he knows why he is the way that he is. Have you had conversations with him since the book's come out? Do you know if he's read the book? No, no, I haven't. Um, I don't talk to him and we haven't for a while. Neither do we have a relationship. I, I, I know he knows the book's out. Um, but yeah, I look, I assume he wouldn't, you know, be happy about it. And, um, I really don't think it really matters. Not not do I really care, you know. Um, mm. It's a lot bigger than that. And, you know, if anyone should be here offended about, about anything, it should be me after everything that he did oh, to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I don't really think it matters and certainly doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Is there questions that you want to ask him? I had questions I wanted to ask him over the years, but um, it's impossible. He's not a guy who you can talk to and communicate with. I've tried many times over the years to to reconcile with him, and it's just not possible. I find it very hard to even talk to him. He shows no remorse, neither does he think he did anything wrong at all. And for me, it's hard to start any kind of communication or relationship with this type of person, you know. I still have a lot of anger about him breaking up the whole family and blaming everybody else for everything that happened and he didn't fight to keep the family together at all and um yeah so i feel i've got a lot of kind of anger about that but i was ready to forgive and move on and see what we can do and and still get something out of the situation because at the end of the day it's your family you know you want to try and fix things if you can but um i've tried you know i really have i have nothing 
you know, to feel bad about even in 10, 15, 20 years' time. I know I've done everything. Someone asked me, you know, when he comes to it and on his deathbed and, and you know, even going as far as asking, are you going to be there? Or are you going to, you know, I don't know, to be honest, because I'm certainly not going to feel bad about anything because mm. I haven't done anything wrong. And I've tried even in the last 15 years to really, you know, put everything in the past, but he can't do it and he doesn't want to do it. Um, so I certainly sleep well at night and I have no regrets. I've really given it my all in every way, whether that's financial or, you know, emotional or whatever it is. And um, he hasn't, you know, moved an inch to try and make things better. So I think it's time for me to move on. I've spent almost 30 years of some kind of in some kind of abuse or abusive situation um, and I don't need that. I don't deserve that. I almost took my life because of that. And I think I want to spend this second part of my life, you know, completely the opposite. You know, you just get to a stage where you want to be happy. At some stage, obviously, I want to have my own family as well in the next few years. And um, the closer I am to that, the more selfish I have to, um, mm. you know, become and think about you know, not even myself or, you know, me and my partner, but about our kids. And that's why I get even more angry because I don't see myself at all doing something like he did in a million years. And then I have even less understanding for him, you know. So I've come to a stage where, you know, it is what it is. You got to let it go and you got to focus on the people that are there for you. Yeah. Obviously, this book has shone the light on a lot of things for you personally, but it's shone the light in a very confronting way on domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of people listen to this show and the aim of the show, and I said to you at the start, is to inspire and motivate. And there is inspiration and there is motivation out of your story, which mm -hmm. we will get to. But if people are listening to this and find themselves in a situation that you were, whether it be similar, worse, not as bad, it's all horrific. What, what should people do in that situation, Yelena? And that's a, I don't know if that's a difficult question to answer. Look, I think everyone's situation is different. Yep. You never know what some someone's you know facing, whether, again, it's sport-related or not, uh, whether they're uh, you know, a young kid or they're you know, grown-up. So I think, uh, again, every situation is unique. Mm. Um, for me, I think the message at the end of the day with this is, I think, to speak up. And the second thing is, I think, to fight against it and not let them um, control you and, and, and make this, you know, your life. I think that's what it, what it was for me. That's what it's about. So, um, you know, some people have come up to me and said, you know what, um, people don't want to talk about these subjects and it's still kind of people are running away from it and... Um, it is a little bit like that, and and we I, I think we all know of certain cases that that you know people didn't speak up, and I seem to be the first one that's come out to talk about this so openly. So in some ways, I really um, you know want to make a change, and and for this book to make a change, but also it makes me sad that that that's the that's the case. You know, mm. we're in two thousand and seventeen, so. I think we're fighting for all of these things like I talk about in my book for, you know, gay rights and certain things and, and things I, I support all that. But there's still so many things like domestic violence that, you know, we need to shine a light on. And it's still so so difficult to, to talk about for so many people. And, and But it's like I said, it's happening. So um, I want people, you know, really to speak up. I want this conversation to be started, whether it's in support or in general about you know what can be what can we do and you know if you see it 
you know, you got to report this, you got to talk about this, whether people are in that situation, you know, who you can call and, and you got to fight against this. And I want this book to give whoever's reading it or finds themselves in a similar situation to give them actually the strength and the courage to do it. I think that's what it's about. I was scared for a very long time, but I, you know, I fought for what I wanted and for what I knew was right and that and, and abuse wasn't it. So I think at the end of the day, that's I think what the book's about. And for those around you that had some inkling, mm-hmm. do you look back, and this is not a portioning blame at all, do you look back and think, I wish they'd spoken up, I wish they'd pushed me, or could they have only ever left you alone in that situation? You, you mentioned various people, um, Australian teammates that tried to bring it up with you, that knew that something was wrong and you, you just shut it down mm-hmm. completely. Should someone push in that situation or do they just need to walk away and leave it up to the individual? Um, I think it's, again, a hard question because I was pushing it away when I was obviously 14, 15, 16. And I think any kid in that situation will do the same, 99.9%. They're never going to go against their family or against their you know, father, or mm. especially if they're abused quite heavily because you got to take into account how scared they are. And they're never going to leave home at 14 or 15. You know, they, they'll, they'll feel horrible about that. So um, I find that part quite difficult even for people that maybe try to bring it up or or interfere but um for me it was that people knew i left home at 19 so obviously i did not agree with my father if i did i would have stayed and for me it was the fact that no one came then no one came after i left home Mm. because even if you didn't know what was going on behind closed doors even though some people knew what he was doing you know publicly was so bad and you could see that you were living with this person that just based on that i would have thought that people would come up and you know ask you how you were doing or you know offer to talk to you or whatever you know any kind of help if they can help um but they didn't and that was the hard part for me that was the hurtful part for me and i didn't understand that so i think it's more also about if people leave an abusive situation about helping them then you know um whether someone stays in a situation a lot longer than I did because I left when I was 19. I mm. still think that's quite young. Um, look, I think for me, uh, if I saw it firsthand, I would certainly, you know, report it or see who I have to call and whether that's, again, you know, calling a hotline or an organisation or maybe even you know, if it's a sport federation or whether that, that would be Tennis Australia or whatever. Yeah. Um, I would certainly go about it that way um, if I saw it and see what can be done because I think it's important even if they go and question a player and she's young and or, um, and, and she denies it I think it's important to have it on record um, that this, this happened because you never know what can happen down the road and, and, and what it might come to so I think it's still important to report it for people to know it um, and know what's happening you know to be honest with you I've, I feel you know obviously this is very close to my heart but for me um, in a way, I haven't thought about this too much, but for me, I would make this public, you know, if if someone saw this or if, you know, I would make it public that this is being reported, you yeah. know, these certain things need to get out there. Yeah. So again, uh, you know, every situation is unique, it depends what happens, it depends how old a person is, it depends, uh, there's a lot of factors, but um, I still, 
you know, would like to see down the road what can be done, you know, whether that's, again, federations in tennis in, 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 in not just in Australia but other countries, mm. but also organisations, you know, what's in place. I don't know exactly what's in place right now. I'm, I'm also not that involved in tennis. But I would like to see, you know, what's being done, whether any, anything else can be done, you know, how far can we go to try and prevent things. I think also education is a big thing. Because I think not just the, the, the kids or the players have to be educated, but the parents. Um, because there's an interesting fact, and, and I spoke about this last week. If you look at, if we're going on success, which is what I think, that, that's the main reason why parents would push their kids like this, at this age in tennis. Let's be honest, tennis is one of the highest paid sports in the world, especially for women. Mm-hmm. So I think this in itself is a recipe for disaster and for parents to push, especially the girls. But if you actually look at the top players, so let's say top five, top 10, top 20 in both the men and the women, the ones that make it to the top and that stay there consistently are actually the ones that come from very supportive and loving families. There is a couple that have made it that were, you know, abused, like I think myself and maybe Mary Peace, which we know about. Mm. But um, there are a lot of ones that actually in the end didn't make it. And the ones that do have very stable families and very supportive, you know, very supportive system, like support system around them, um, which is very interesting. So I think that's what needs to be put out there. That's what needs to be, we need to talk about that and educate actually the parents and the players about this. Yeah. There's so many negatives in the book. Um, but the positives in the book, as I said at the start, I, I shook my head at how you could go out on court and perform in this situation, in these various situations. Tell me about, for you, um, about resilience mm-hmm. and motivation and what got you out on court being able to perform at a highly elite level, as you said, mm. number four in the world, Grand Slam semifinals. How did you get out there? What motivated you to get out there and succeed on court? Well, I think a lot of it was also pressure from him, obviously, and fear. Um, so how do you not And let, even, yeah, he, sorry, 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 go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. How do you not let that fear envelop you on the mm. tennis court and take over what you're trying to do? Well, I think someone called me once, um, might even be have been Tony Roach, that I'm one tough cookie. Mm. And he said that, um, I think it was in 2009. And I think that's actually quite a good description of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm quite tough. I think not just everything that I went through my, with my father, but the war and the life that I had to lead and... Um, always constantly for years, like I said, we talked about racism and even bullying at school. All these things that I had to go through have made me quite tough. Uh, For me, I find it even more that I was even stronger later when I was going, like I said, I talk about depression now, but people had no idea I was on the tour dealing with depression and almost wanting to kill myself and almost kill myself while playing tennis. Um, Very often I would go you know, out there on the court, even later when my, my ranking dropped, maybe I was 100 in the world, but people don't realize I was going out there with all of these problems and winning, you know, a match maybe on the challenger level was such a big accomplishment. And it's hard to explain that to people on, you know, such an individual sport and a tough tour like that. But for me, those were, you know, accomplishments because there was so much going on still in my private life mm. that I, again, talk about and everything that he was putting me through. I mean, I'm not sure which player in the world, if ever, has had to have security guards to protect them against their father, you know, threatening to come and kill everybody. So I think that in itself going out on the court is an accomplishment. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are one one tough cookie. 
Back to Yelena in a minute. Last week's episode of the Howie Games also revolved around tennis. It featured Sam Groth, who did a brilliant job explaining what life on the tennis tour is really like when you aren't a top 10 player and how tough it can be. This was this literally recently, a couple yeah. of weeks ago when I was battling with my decision whether to keep playing or not as well. Another bloke's written on the back of that, a different person, three double fault in last service games, 12 double faults in whole match. You know what? You just ordered your death. I'm going to come <laughs> and f***ing kill you. I don't even know what to make of that. Yeah, I mean, I sort of chuckle at it, but it's... It's, it's not funny, it's not. It's not a, a funny laugh. Like, it's not ha-ha, I'm laughing, cause, but it's, it's, it's almost like... And I know I've received it because I'm the one that, you know, took a screenshot of that and posted it. Yeah. But the fact that people write this stuff and I think it's now with social media and, you know, tennis you can gamble on. People can go and place a bet on a match at any level of any tournament anywhere in the world and, you know, people sit there and have lost their whatever bet they've made and think that it's okay to, you know, go and hurl abuse at another human being like that and it's pretty disgusting to be honest. That's Sam Groth on last week's episode of the Howie Games. Back to Yelena. Tennis earnings, and you talk about literally since having lots of money and then having no money and being in Monaco with no money because you're sending it back. I don't know if you know the answer to this question. I don't know if you even want to answer the question. But have you got an idea over your, your tennis career what your tennis earnings and sponsorship mm. would have been? Uh, I know approximately, yeah, absolutely. I know obviously my prize money, sponsors. Um, that was a bit of a legal thing why I put in there, you know, millions. Right, um, okay. Because it's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and I also talk about constantly sending, you know, money later. $200,000 checks. Yeah, so it's a lot. I, you know, I, I still earned after I left home and I was sending that. I, I just wanted... Why? Because I knew money was important to him. Um, and I thought that would make things easier because my mum was still there, even though I had some mixed feelings about her role in everything. I was still kind of felt, you know, protective of her and my brother was, um, you know, eight years younger than me, so he was very young. And I knew my father was going mental. So I felt like, you know, if he's got as much money as possible, that it would make it easier for everybody, which it didn't. He actually got worse. So those were the reasons, you know, obviously if I didn't know, I wouldn't have done that, but, mm. um, I thought it would. And, uh, I don't, I don't regret doing that, you know, money in the end, especially at the time to me, didn't mean anything. All I wanted was, you know, a normal situation and mm. a family and for the people, the couple of people that were around me to, to have peace. Cause at one stage, you know, people were kind of worried to even be, you know, around me, which I understand. So... Um, it was it was hard, you know. It was hard. Um, like I said, money, material things, it's fine. It doesn't matter to me. But I feel like, you know, I still didn't have to do that and send all that because it didn't make a difference, you know. What were you left with when you finished? Um, well, I got, look, I almost, yeah, I almost faced bankruptcy, obviously. I talk about that. I was left with nothing. But, After um, earning millions. Yeah, yeah. But, um but I got myself out of it. I got myself out of it and um, I worked hard and um, in a way it's good. I think 
another learning experience um, to see what it's like to be there again, you know, because we didn't have much. I earned a, a lot of money, but then again, I was left with nothing, you know, after after working so hard for so many years. So in a way, another great, great experience. And I've certainly learned a lot from that. Um, but I've also, again, I think showed to myself that I can get out of another thing, you know, another thing that I was able to get out of, which was, you know, in the end, I had pretty much nothing left, but I've crawled myself and uh, out of it and, and I'm, I'm doing well. So um, I'm just sad that actually I could have done something maybe better with that money, not even for myself. I mean, you know, even charity wise, I could have done something better with it. I feel kind of bad sometimes that I gave it to him, you know, because he already got a lot and I could have um, used, put that to better use. But, you know, it is what it is. Not specifically in relation to your father, but again, I know a lot of young people listen to this podcast um, and their parents will have to decide for the younger young ones whether they want them to listen to this at this particular point. How do we overcome? I don't mean specifics here. How do we overcome to achieve in your mind? I think at the end of the day, it's all about hard work and just fighting, just competing and fighting, whether that's in sport or in life. That's what I found, you know, worked for me because I was literally down and out, you know, many times. And the big one, obviously, for me was depression and almost committing suicide. But for me, in on the inside, I always try to fight. And I think you got to believe that you can do something all the way until the end. And I fought for many things, whether it was to escape the war, have a better life, earn money, you know, have great results, satisfy my father, you know, get out of depression, whatever it was, it was constantly, it was a fight. So I think you got to be a competitor, I think in life in general, but, you know, especially we're talking about sport here. Um, and you just got to fight. And I worked very hard, you know, even outside of tennis. I worked hard on myself after depression. I worked hard on my relationship, which, like we said, is almost at 15 years. But, um, you know, we've hardly ever fought. But still, I felt like I had to fight for that as well because my father was making it difficult. So it was constantly about always, you know, fighting and, and, and getting better. Yeah. And w- when you talk about relationships, does it – what you went through does – this could be an ignorant question I'll ask anyway, does it distort your view of love and does it make it more difficult to love or not? Like you, you've got a mm. beautiful, wonderful partner you've been mm. with 15 years now. Does what you've been through affect the way you can love people? Yeah, one per- one other person asked me that. Um, and no, actually, some people that were around me maybe thought that might happen at some stage and someone even asked me, do you hate men? And I'm like, no, I don't because I... I believe that there is better things out there and just because one person was like this doesn't mean everybody else is and I certainly my view towards you know men has absolutely you know doesn't it isn't changed or it isn't worse by what I went through um, because I still look at other people that are around like my partner they were, that are absolutely the opposite and wonderful people. So, no, it, it hasn't. And um, maybe I've been lucky to be with someone for 15 years who, you know, we fit so well together. And like I said, we've hardly ever – I don't think we've ever had a serious fight, really. He must be a remarkable man. Yeah, like um, – so maybe I've been lucky. Maybe mm. that's why I think this way. But um, no, even when it was happening, I never, you know, had any bad feelings towards, you know, any, any other person or, you know, for, for in this particular situation, any other men. No, not at all. When we sit down in another 10 years and it's Elena Dockage, the second book, <laughs> I don't know what that will be called. <laughs> what will that book contain? Look, I've um, joked <laughs> with my publisher, actually, mm. um, 
and they know this. Um, I've still got quite a bit of material um, for probably you know at least one or two more books. Um, I would have liked to have talked about the tour more and the actual tennis. And um, I think the tour in itself is quite an interesting subject. And people, in what way? I think in a lot of ways there are obviously some positives, but there are also a lot of negatives. Um, and I've had some negative experiences there as well. And I just didn't have obviously the space to write about it in this book and um, we'll see I would like to write another one or two books that's you know some of it connected to my story still um, here um, some of it might be you know looking forward and, and what I've done uh, you know in the last maybe five or ten years um, and what is that what, what, uh, that was sort of the genesis of the question what, what would you like to do for the next mm. five or ten years look I've got a lot of kind of goals now with this I didn't think it would get this far and it's only been three weeks so the big one for me I would like to have my own foundation I originally thought maybe mm. you know being connected with certain organisations and charities which would be great still but um, I want to do my own thing you know I think I can do a lot. Um, the only problem for me is I would like to be kind of involved in a lot of things from sport to kids um, to, you know, even even elite athletes to obviously domestic violence. And, and there are other things that are, you know, ca- kind of close to my heart from a refugee standpoint, um, also poverty um, and a lot of things like that. So, um, yeah, the, the big goal for me actually in the next 12 months is to start to, you know, set that up and see what I can do with that. Um, I've obviously got a whole lot of my own work from TV and other things, but um, I want to, you know, definitely be kind of, um, whether that's the face or the voice of, you know, being this person now who's turned everything around about speaking up about all these things that people, you know, very often don't want to talk about or feel uncomfortable. Um, That's why I've said even to you and the media, guys, I can talk about this. We should talk about this. I don't feel uncomfortable at all. No subject or everything that's in the book is off the table and I want to discuss it and talk about it. Um, So... I want to see what we can do in terms of speaking up and for this not to be, you know, this thing we're running away from or we're embarrassed to talk about because it's only going to make things worse. So whatever is in place or or I can do in the next, you know, especially 12 months, but in the next few years, I think will be very interesting. And I think I can help a lot of people, a lot of kids and um, see, you know, I want to make a change. Yeah. Nearly out of time. I Mm -hmm. have two more questions for you. Uh, I work on a lot of different sports. And I'm lucky enough to work on a cricket tournament called the Big Bash with a, a former Australian cricket captain, Ricky Ponting, who can sit there and tell me what's going to happen mm-hmm. three minutes before it happens. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard you commentate tennis mm-hmm. and you do a similar thing. Okay. Your understanding is one thing, but your ability to explain it mm-hmm. is just as important because there's no point knowing it but not being able to explain it to the audience. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy the tennis side of commentary because you, you are amazing at it? I do. I started this year at the Australian Open yeah, um, and that was pretty much my first time. I did one or two matches before that, so I'm quite new um, at it and I think I'm getting better. Obviously, in commentary practices, you know, you need you need to practice and have a lot of matches under your belt. Um, so I still think, you know, I've got certain things to work on, but I think I've got a great knowledge of the game um, from both a technical point of view um, to I think just what a player feels you know going out there so I think I've got quite a bit of understanding um, 
and I'm able to share that and, and explain that, which at times has been a challenge because you've got to explain it to the reader, but not obviously go too far into it and talk too much. So that's kind of been interesting how I can, you know, explain it to the reader the best way possible or to, to someone that watches tennis um, the best way possible. So it's been great. I'm doing a lot of it again next year. I'm actually doing the playoff next week to get a, a few more matches under my belt. Mm-hmm. And Do you um, work as hard at commentary as you've done at everything else in your oh life. yeah I'm very prepared right, so I bet you are. <laughs> yeah from all my notes actually going into the match um, I know obviously a lot of players and I still follow tennis but um, I, I really want to get into the little things you know from maybe a player never get never getting past the third round of a grand slam and why that is or you know just certain things like that about you know history of a player and um, what they've done so I, I like that I like that aspect of it and I like to talk about it yeah I'll put you on the spot here who's your dream match to commentate it can be men it can be women it can be men and women Who, mm-hmm. who's who's inspired you on the tennis court against watching etc that you'd love to mm-hmm. commentate on well the men for me Federer Nadal final last year the Australian Open was unbelievable that's my like right now dream match and yep. uh, yeah that would be amazing I just to, I actually watched that match I was able to get in and, and watch the final um, for women I think that's that's a bit harder I've, I've actually like a lot of players um, in the women that I've played against and, and that were also a little bit before my time so uh, obviously my big idols were Salas and Graf mm-hmm. and I watched all of their matches um, but also for me Serena is the big one I have so much respect for her as a tennis player and the champion that she is but also off the court and I really want to see her back I think it would be incredible but um, maybe still maybe Graf and Salas or, or maybe Graf and, and Williams Serena yeah so talking about Serena and you're talking about being a tennis expert I'm going to put you on the spot again now here we are it's the Australian Open I'm joined by Yelena Dokic a long time player how do you beat Serena Williams I think um you have to have an unbelievable day and she has to have an average day. <laughs> I think if she's um, anywhere near, you know, um, her best, it's very hard. Her serve is incredible. It's um, pretty hard to return, almost impossible. So um, a lot of it depends, I think, um, on how she serves for me. And uh, look, I, I think a bit of luck, definitely. You know, it, it's just very difficult to play against. And uh uh, she's so good at Grand Slams and when it really matters. So I think uh, she's maybe lost once in the final of a Grand Slam mm. or once or twice in, in her whole career. She's played for almost 20 years, which is pretty remarkable. So um, one of the players out there that you can, even though I don't like to say that, for, like any nobody should say that, that it's impossible or that you can't beat anybody, but she's close to it, you know, especially if she if she plays, you know anywhere near you know her best it's pretty hard yeah you're made for this tennis expert gig (laughs) a final question today now looking for what brings Yelena Dockage joy and light and happiness um, I think I'm very happy with um, just what I've come out of and survived and that actually just me waking up every morning I feel so good about that um and for me, I've got, I think, a lot to look forward to. Having a family is my big goal, I think, for the rest of my life because um, I think I need to break the cycle of what, what has been happening in my family for, for a few generations. And that's a big thing for me. Um, I think both my partner and I, we really you know, want to have kids, obviously, but also really work hard and be, obviously, great parents. Um, but uh, just do it differently and just... Um, 
really break that cycle. That's very important for me. Um, I have obviously a lot of things I'm working on work-wise that I'm very happy with from TV to, to uh, motivational speaking. So something I would like to continue um, and see, you know, what I can do. But I'm very, I think, lucky with the transition that I've made going from tennis into normal life because it's such a difficult thing to do. A lot of people have talked to me about it, especially Todd Woodbridge. She said, you need to be careful. You have no idea what you're in for. And I actually retired with injuries and surgery. So I had mm. no idea the last match that I would play that that would be it. So it was a bit of a shock, but I think I've done great. I struggled maybe for the first six months or a year. Um, it's such a kind of reality check when you get back to normal life. You know, there's nothing there. No one's running around. There's no spectators. You're not playing on these big chords there's no adrenaline so it's really hard also to find what you're good at now because you've done this thing that you're good at that you know you also earn a living from but now you're going to find what else are you good at and also what what do you enjoy so I think a lot of athletes struggle with that after they retire and I think I've been very lucky to find quite a few things that I enjoy but I'm also you know quite good at may you have thousands of beautiful children thank you (laughs) etc from here on in the book is Unbreakable by Yelena Dokic. Thanks for being so open and honest and being so generous with your time. As mm-hmm. I said at the start, congratulations on the book. It's the most courageous thing I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a superstar. Thank you, Yelena. Thank you for having me. I really hope you got something out of that episode. As No doubt it was difficult to listen to at times. To Yelena, thank you so much for your honesty. May your life be full of joy and love moving forward. You are truly remarkable. And again, please, Yelena's book is called Unbreakable please have a look at it. That's it for this week's show. Next week, Pat Cash. Until next Thursday, after this episode, more than ever, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.